Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Boris Johnson increased his efforts to get all English pupils back to school this week, but was beset by yet another government U-turn and another blame game in Whitehall. You couldn't sit your exams, which you yearned to do. And uh, I'm afraid your, your grades were uh, almost derailed by a mutant algorithm. And I, I know how, how stressful that must have been. Welcome to Payne's Politics, your essential insider guide to what's happening in British politics from the Financial Times, with me, Sebastian Payne. In this episode, I'll be discussing why the Johnson government is making so many changes in policy and how civil servants are taking the heat for bad decision-making with political correspondent Laura Hughes and political columnist Robert Shrimsley. And later, I'll be looking at the results of the Liberal Democrat leadership contest and where the centre ground of British politics goes next with Laura and special guest Daisy Cooper, the Lib Dem MP for St Albans. Laura and Robert, welcome back. Hello. Hi, Seb. So this is rather a sad podcast for us, as it's the last time we're going to be hearing from Laura in quite some time as she's heading off on maternity leave. But before you leave us for a while, Laura, I do want to ask you about the pressing topic of the week, which is U-turns. Boris Johnson seems to like changing his mind a lot. What have you fundamentally changed your mind on? Well, this is a very suitable answer. I was adamant I would not have a baby before I was married. But two months after saying that, I changed my mind quite dramatically. And here I am, ready to pop, engaged and not married. Well, those are the kind of big life choices that are good to always change at a rapid rate. Robert, what about you? I had a period in the mid-90s where I bounced back and forward between the FT and the Telegraph. I went from Telegraph to the FT, back to the Telegraph, and then back to the FT in 2000. I have to say, although each of them seemed like a good move at the time and a good decision in terms of my career. I, I think if, if I worked for a newspaper reporting on myself, I could easily portray that as a series of chaotic reversals and U-turns. Well, I think the only U-turn I can fundamentally think about is that I own several cars over many years in London. And every time I bought one, I bought old vintage cars that broke down, cost me huge sums of money, thousands of pounds. And then when the coronavirus hit, I actually got a newer car. I found it to be a wonderful thing. So it's less dramatic than your life choices, but I'm finding it very useful. Well, no one is U-turning quicker or more effectively than Boris Johnson, so let's take ourselves in a straight line to the main political topic of the week. After his summer break, the Prime Minister went back to work and put all his energies into ensuring pupils across England return to their education. In order to do so, Mr Johnson announced masks would be worn in communal areas of schools and places that are locally locked down. That's the complete opposite of his government's policy just a few days prior. 
by our count, this is the 12th major policy U-turn this year. Many of them have taken place this summer due to the difficulties in handling the coronavirus pandemic. But Tory MPs are increasingly irate at this haphazard policymaking. Charles Walker, a senior backbencher, summed up the mood on Times Radio. We need to discuss these things. Now, it may well be that Parliament decides this is all a frightfully good idea, but the government just cannot make this stuff up now on the hoof as it goes along, saying one thing on, on Monday, changing its mind on Tuesday, something different presented on Wednesday. It's just not acceptable. So, Laura, obviously, the Prime Minister knows that getting people back to school is important for them, for their education, but also for his political standing. So much has been staked on this. They obviously just decided to do the masks U-turn because it was necessary to give people the confidence to get back in schools. So why wasn't that the policy in the first place? Number 10 have insisted that they follow the latest medical and scientific advice, but the World Health Organization updated their guidance days before this U-turn when they said that children aged over 12 probably should wear masks. In response to that, the Scottish government under Nicola Sturgeon decided that they would introduce face coverings in communal areas. Despite both those things happening, number 10 said, no, the policy isn't changing. The reason I think it did move is that we saw head teachers starting to come out and say, well, we'll just adopt this policy anyway, regardless of what the government advises. So, This really was number 10 being advised by chief medical officer that they weren't needed and then huge public and political pressure forcing them to U-turn on yet another issue. Now, Robert, scores of the Tory MPs I've spoken to this week echoed the thoughts of Charles Walker we heard at the top of the programme there. It's not just the substance of this U-turn because Tories hate masks and many of them see it as an infringement on personal liberty, but it's the form. These U-turns always seem to happen quite late at night at about 11 o'clock with no detail. And I think that makes people feel quite angry and out of the loop. Yes, I think that's absolutely right. I think, in truth, there are different types of U-turn. There are those where policy evolves, facts change. There are those U-turns that we've seen where the government's been forced to back down by the numbers in Parliament because Tory MPs were threatening to rebel. And there are those, like the A-level result one, where there's an absolute screeching reverse. But there are some patterns with all three. And one of them is that they don't talk to enough people before they reach their first position. So that actually you don't have the sense of a government consulting widely, taking the temperature of whichever group it's making policy for. And therefore it's taken by surprise when its diktats are resisted. And I think the point about Tory MPs is is particularly important in terms of party management now, because if MPs get the sense that the government can be pushed off the position it's taken very quickly in a handful of days, then they are going to be less prepared to sort of put their head over the trenches and stand up and fight for the policy, which they think is wrong anyway, in the confident knowledge that the government might well you know, leave them out in no man's land, just to finish this metaphor, days later by changing the position it sent them out to fight for. Now, Laura, you and I try to dig into who is exactly is to blame for this, for the FT this week. And as you'd expect, it is cutting many different ways here. So fundamentally, first, is it ministers who are to blame? Because they're the ones who have to make the decision. They're the ones who, like Gavin Williamson, are taking advice from officials, from policy experts, from their special advisors, from MPs, colleagues. How much of it is down to people in the cabinet who are just making the wrong calls? Having looked at this, there are a number of reasons why we keep seeing these U-turns. And if you speak to officials who are loyal to their ministers, they will say that one of the problems that we've seen is is this poor state machinery. They're saying that real-time data and statistics have been really hard to get hold of in real time. 
a lot of ministers are being forced to make decisions where they don't always have the complete picture. So it's a really difficult situation for them. We also know that obviously a lot of civil servants are still working from home. And that's something that loyal government officials have pointed to. They've said it's very hard. You've lost some of the sharpness in government because people aren't sat together in a room talking things through. But on a more sceptical note, when you chat to Tory MPs who are watching this perhaps a little bit more from the outside, they feel that there are cabinet ministers and ministers who might have been in their department for too long, thinking of education there, ministers like Nick Gibb, and also concerns that they're just not competent. Another big point that came out is that there doesn't seem to be a mechanism in number 10 for looking ahead. So what happens is you have government departments, ministers making decisions, they prove to be very unpopular. Number 10 wades in, decides they don't want the backlash and they end up U-turning. And of course, the pandemic means that things are moving very, very quickly. At the moment, it does look as though Labour's on the front foot, they call for things, and then the government seems to fall into line. And Robert, how much do you think the public care about any of this? Because obviously in Westminster, it gives us great copy to look at all these decisions made and digging at who went wrong and why and all the rest of it. And there was a YouGov poll out this week that showed the Tory polling lead has down to just 2%. You know, this idea of being competent, I don't think the Labour has quite stuck yet, but it does feel to me as if we're on the road to that happening. I think the public attitude to U-turns is considerably more nuanced than sometimes the media attitude, but then again, it's our job to report them when they happen. I think voters like the idea that a politician might listen to them and say, oh, no, wait a minute, I've got this wrong. We're going to think again. They also recognise the unique circumstances of the pandemic. The problem is, as we are becoming aware, it's about the totality and the frequency. There are, by the way, some like the A-level results, which really, really cut through. And those are the ones that you just can't have too many of, because that's when the voters start to look at you and think, well, hang on, we put you in power to make these decisions and you don't seem to be very good at doing that. It is cumulative, but there are also a weighting of them. So there are some that the voters don't mind at all that you've changed your mind. There are some they won't even notice. And there are some that really cut through. When you consider that this government was only elected in December, just how many we've had in such a short period of time, you have to say that there is a serious issue of party management. And there is also a serious issue of ministerial competence, because the fact is you have a lot of cabinet ministers who are quite new to their jobs, quite new to their departments, and not especially experienced in government. They're there because they were loyal to the prime minister, either personally or on Brexit. And they've not shown themselves very, very good at interrogating officials, at interrogating the information they're given and asking difficult questions which might have led them to a different position. So I think one of the things you're going to have to have is slightly more forceful ministers. The difficulty is the Downing Street is torn between wanting forceful ministers who will run their departments well and not really wanting forceful ministers who will stand up to the central machine. Well, just on this point about Downing Street, Robert, Dominic Cummings is obviously Boris Johnson's chief advisor and has tried to centralise a lot of power at the heart of government. Do you think that plays a role in this as well, that people are too fearful across government in ministerial offices and in Whitehall to make the wrong decision? And that in itself leads to bad decision making. There's a balancing act here. And Boris Johnson and Dominic Cummings are not the first people to try to do this. Tony Blair did it, particularly with the setting up of the delivery unit. Almost all prime ministers get to office and suddenly find that they have very few levers they can pull, which really, really make a change, other than perhaps the threat of sacking a cabinet minister. So it's much harder for them 
to effect change unless Whitehall really understands this is one of their priorities and they're right on top of it. But the issue is you can't solve everything from the centre. Saying the machine needs to work differently, saying you want it more accountable to Downing Street, more aware of what Downing Street's priorities are, that's fine. There's nothing wrong with that as long as Downing Street knows what its priorities are. But you can't do it with weak cabinet ministers. The secretaries of state have to be effective and forceful people themselves who can not only carry out what Downing Street wishes, but are also able to say to Downing Street, yeah, I know you think this is the right idea, but here's why it isn't. So centralisation is part of an answer, but it's not the whole answer. And I think that's what the government's beginning to discover. Well, it's clear how the government is playing this blame game because we saw the departure of two senior civil servants this week, Jonathan Slater, who is the permanent secretary of the Department for Education, and Sally Collier, who's head of the exams grading body, Ofqual. Now, Mr Slater was pushed out very unceremoniously this week and Miss Collier went over the exams grading debacle last week. Laura, it seems like quite a dangerous game by the government to pile all the blame on the officials. I think it's incredibly risky and it could backfire when this all settles. I think in the short term, everybody is just focused on trying to get schools reopening over the next two weeks. That's the big test. It's the test of whether or not Gavin Williamson, the education secretary, can survive in his post. But it's really quite extraordinary that you have these two very senior officials who have gone. And yet the man who's been fronting all of this, Gavin Williamson, is still in post. It tells us a lot, I think, about the fact that Number 10 really do stand by their guys and they value loyalty. But that could all change if schools don't go back the way they should. Boris Johnson's waded in, he's taken personal responsibility for some of this. But then in that instance, I think it's very hard for Gavin Williamson to stay in the role. And When you turn on officials, you'll see officials starting to talk to the media more, briefing against the government. And that's a position I don't think Number 10 really want to be in. I'd agree with that. I've spoken to a whole bunch of senior civil servants this week who feel this is part of a concerted strategy to blame civil servants for ministerial mistakes. Dave Penman, who's head of the FDA trade union that represents senior civil servants, made this point on the BBC. This is simply scapegoating. This is simply the Prime Minister determining that civil service heads will roll to save a minister. And that's as clear as day to the rest of the civil service as well. So I I think not only is this not good for government, I think it will have very long-term implications for the civil service. Well, Robert, you've heard those words from Dave Penman there, who says the government is trying to undermine the civil service here. I was quite struck as well by a blog post by Bronwyn Maddox, who's the director of the Institute for Government this week, which is a studiously neutral, independent think tank that writes about Westminster and Whitehall. And she said, given that Sally Colley has gone, given that Jonathan Slater has gone, Gavin Williamson does really need to go. And I know we've talked about this already on the podcast, but do you think he can survive when all the senior officials around him have lost their jobs? Well, the answer is yes, he can if the Prime Minister wants him to. I I think he will go early next year, possibly though to another role. The other point about this, I think, is that with each department, this is a trick you can really only pull once. You can say this was all the fault of a dysfunctional Department for Education this time, but any other problems, well, now you've remodelled the Department for Education. I noticed Matt Hancock in the middle of a crisis, you know, planting the blame firmly on Public Health England, cutting it up and giving its core function to someone else. Again, that's a function you can only pull once. And so in each department, the government now owns whatever problems are coming. 
And it's going to find civil servants not only, as everybody said, more fearful, but also more determined to say to ministers when they're doing something they think is wrong, OK, I'm going to need a written direction from you to do this because our advice is going the other way. If you're going to try and pin the blame on us, we want written proof that this was your decision. And so although you can do this a bit, and although, as in all cases, the blame will never lie with one person alone, there'll be issues on all sides, it's not something the government can keep doing. It's going to start running out of alibis if it hasn't already. And I'm just finally, Robert, quite struck by just how many of those very senior civil servants have left their positions. We've had Mark Sedwell, the Cabinet Secretary, Philip Rutnam, who's the Permanent Secretary at the Home Office, Simon MacDonald, the Permanent Secretary at the Foreign Office, Richard Heaton, the Permanent Secretary at the Ministry for Justice, and now Jonathan Slater, the Permanent Secretary at the Department for Education. We know Dominic Cummings said hard rain was going to fall on Whitehall, but this is a big substantial change in leadership of key government departments here. And we also know that there was a shit list of permanent civil servants. And if you were on that list, you'd have to feel quite nervous now about what your future career is going to be. That's absolutely right. And of course, because there is an appointment process for the next head of the civil service, there could be further changes to come. It's not unusual for governments to come in and want to change the leaderships at the tops of departments. What's unusual is the pace and the volume of this. I just think this works very well for a narrative of the Conservatives that says, the government is dysfunctional, it doesn't work, we have to make these changes, we have to get everything working. And as with so many of the things Dominic Cummings says, there is a case to be made for this. The problem is, now they've made it, now they're acting on it, and now they have to deliver on this. And the one thing we've seen so far is that this is not a government with a fantastic record of delivery so far. Laura and Robert, thank you. After a mind-bogglingly long contest that began last December, the Liberal Democrats have finally elected their new leader, Ed Davey. The former cabinet minister won with a decisive two-to-one majority against his opponent, Leila Moran, and were now set about trying to rebuild the party after its poor showing in last year's general election. With just 11 MPs and scoring a mere six points in the opinion polls, no one is taking much notice of the Lib Dems. But in a Payne's Politics interview special earlier this month, Sir Ed told me that his track record could turn things around. In terms of what we bring to this challenging moment for our party and our country, it's different things. I think I bring experience, experience of 20 years in Parliament, five years in government, uh, negotiating at the EU, the United Nations, and I also bring my skills and knowledge as an economist. Well, Laura Hughes, you've been following the Lib Dems closely for some time now. There was a widespread expectation that Sir Ed was going to win this contest, but that was a pretty decisive amount. What do you think that tells us about the mood of the Lib Dems? I think that there is a sense that they want somebody that they recognise. In the same way that Vince Cable came back and was a, a familiar face, there was really a feeling that a continuity candidate in Ed Davey was probably the best way forward. He has been temporarily leading the party since Joe Swinston stood down after the last election and, you know, has been able to get his responses to moving policy issues into the press and has sort of been there as the party has grappled really over their future in the wake of what was a really quite devastating December election result. Well, Daisy Cooper, first of all, thank you very much for joining us on the podcast. It's a delight to have you. You were one of the MPs who supported Ed Davey. What was your personal reason then? How do you think he's going to turn things around for the party? Well, when the contest started for the leadership, I hadn't actually made up my mind either way who I was going to support. 
and I listened to the sort of pictures of both Ed and Layla. And uh, ultimately, as you say, I did come down in support of Ed. And there's a couple of reasons for that. First of all, I think it was because of his experience. Now, you know, we, are, we are in a place where we really need to get the building blocks in place to help us win more seats at future elections. And Ed has got that experience of having to build up a seat from the ground up, which is what Liberal Democrats have to do in the first past the post system. Uh, and the other thing was his focus. So he's talked repeatedly about the climate crisis and also the crisis in social care. And these are two of the big issues that I think will shape the country in the coming few years. And if you just look at the next few months, uh, we've got the triple threat of the uh, COVID, uh, of Brexit and of the climate emergency. And Ed's got a real uh, strong track record in talking about these issues with authority. Well, you mentioned everybody's favourite topic there, Brexit, which I think we should just touch on because, of course, the Lib Dems went into last year's general election with that revoke Article 50 policy that proved very unpopular. And Brexit's a bit of a tricky one now because there's an obvious place for a rejoined party, but it doesn't feel as if Britain or that portion of the British electorate that would be open to rejoin the EU is quite there yet. So where do you think the party should be on Brexit? Well, we're in opposition at the moment. And I think, you know, the main task for us, is, along with all other opposition parties, is to hold the government to account, to make sure the government is prepared and has got a plan in place. But the fact is, our values haven't changed. Liberal Democrats have always, throughout history, been an open internationalist party that wants to work closely with our partners around the world on big global issues. That isn't going to change. But the nuanced position on what we do uh, on Brexit will depend on how things unfold in the coming months and years. Well, I think that's a very interesting point, Laura, because when I spoke to Ed earlier this month, he sort of outlined a vision where you could see him either backing or maybe even abstaining on Boris Johnson's Brexit deal because he made the point, which I think many people feel, that no deal is the worst of all outcomes. So if that is the absolute baseline, then what comes next is a Brexit deal. And if it's those two things, do you have a trade deal with slightly better terms or go for no deal? That's going to be an interesting point for the Lib Dems because, as Daisy was just saying, they're not going to quite become a pro-rejoin party, but their pro-Europeanism isn't going away. Exactly. And also we have a new Labour leader now in Keir Starmer. And the real issue, I think, for the Lib Dems at the end of last year is that they just could not work with Jeremy Corbyn. But if Keir Starmer starts adopting stances on the PM's Brexit deal that the Liberal Democrats can live with, I think it's realistic to think that those two parties could be working together But obviously, the problem for the Lib Dems here is that there are only sort of, you know, a small number of MPs and there have only really been between eight and 12 MPs over the last three general elections. And that's the main problem there. Labour doesn't need the Liberal Democrats necessarily to help them. The Tories now have a majority of 80. And again, they're not relying on the DUP. So it does, it puts the Lib Dems in a tricky position. Well, I think the issue of differentiating the party from Keir Starmer is going to be a fascinating one. Now, on the economy, um, Mr. Davies supports the idea of a universal basic income, which he admitted would cost tens of billions of pounds, but said overall, he won't be more left-wing than Keir Starmer's Labour Party. Um, I'm someone who believes in free trade and competition and private enterprise. That's hardly to the left of the Labour Party. The Labour Party wants to nationalise huge amounts of our economy still. It doesn't believe in the sort of competitive market economy that I believe in. So, Daisy, you can hear what Ed said there about how he wants to position the party on the economy there. But when you look at the sort of platform he's putting forward and the sort of things Keir Starmer are doing, they are pretty similar. 
Well, yes and no. I mean, I think, to be honest, we're still seeing how Keir Starmer's platform is emerging. We know that Labour is really focused on winning back some of those red wall seats. And it's interesting already that behind the scenes in Parliament, you know, when there's been a few conversations about voting, particularly on sort of law and order type issues, it's clear that uh, Keir Starmer and his cabinet are very keen to be sort of competing with the Conservatives in this space to look like they're all very serious on law and order and slightly sort of authoritarian. And that opens up the gap for Liberal Democrats to do what we do best, which is to talk about liberalism and to talk about freedoms and to talk about civil liberties. And those are our core values. Where Keir Starmer takes the Labour Party, I think we still haven't seen that yet. I think his position is still emerging. We don't know sort of which strand of Labour Party he wants to position the Labour Party in, in terms of where we are. As Ed said, you know, we are a a party that believes in competition. We're a party that believes in the welfare state. We believe in having a strong economy to deliver those strong public services. But we've also got this very strong sort of history of coming up with the cutting edge new ideas. And that's something that I really hope that under Ed's leadership, we can recapture that. Because I do think that for, for too long, the Lib Dems have focused not just on winning elections, but haven't developed the new ideas that are exciting that the country needs for these times. And we have often led the way on those controversial issues, you know, whether it was the the Corn Laws or equal marriage. And I think that now is a time where we need to be looking at pretty radical new solutions like a universal basic income and like, you know, this big Green New Deal that Ed's been talking about, uh, whilst also putting the building blocks in place to make sure we can build our party in Parliament over the next few years. Now, Laura, let's look at the other side of the centre ground, which is the Tories. And one of the things that I think is very striking is the Lib Dems came second to the Conservatives in 98 seats across the UK. And this has always been the Lib Dem strategy. You do well in local council elections, you build up a local support base, and then you try and do a good showing to show that the Lib Dems are the real opposition in these seats. We all know those famous bar charts, the winning here, um, ones that have become fantastically parodied online over the years. But it does strike me that Daisy was talking about Keir Starmer speaking to the Red War in the North. That's what the Tories are doing as well, because Boris Johnson knows he's got to show to those voters that they were right to vote Conservative for the first time last year. There's a whole bunch of seats elsewhere in England where you could see the Lib Dems making gains, places that are quite prosperous, shall we say, within the reach of London, like St Albans, where Daisy represents and won from the Tories at the last election. It feels to me that there is a clear opportunity there for those people who could be won back over. Yes, exactly. I think that there is a broad agreement within the party that the way back to success in, in a general election is to really target conservative incumbents and to become the sort of main centre left challenger to those MPs who are sitting in seats that you talked about, those sort of university seats, where they might be able to sort of scoop up those kind of kind of progressives from other parties who might feel a little bit uncomfortable with Boris Johnson and the culture war, who might look at Labour and think they're a little bit too radical. But the real problem for the Lib Dems of the last election was that because you had such sort of polarised leaders, you had Boris Johnson on one end and then you had Jeremy Corbyn on the other, often when people are desperate to keep one party out, they vote for the other party and they don't feel like they can give their vote, take a punt, take a chance on a smaller one like the Liberal Democrats. But if you had more moderate conservatives out there or moderate Labour, you know, if they feel as though that they could live with one or other, they might be willing to give the Liberal Democrats a chance. And 
it felt last December that there were a few seats that genuinely the Liberal Democrats could have taken off the Tories. But unfortunately, the strategy just did not work. They took a very hard stance on Brexit, calling for Article 50 to be revoked, which just went down quite badly with people. But, you know, the landscape is very different. And I think Keir Starmer makes it very different. And all efforts are going to be put into becoming that centre-left challenger to Conservative MPs. Stacey, middle-class university graduate, is that the future for the Lib Dems? And how are you feeling about next year's local elections? Because Sir Ed said that he was quietly confident that you could make some gains then. One of the problems we've always had is that wherever we've been sort of in the polls, our vote has been distributed almost equally across the country and in different constituency seats. So when you have a first-past-the-post system, you know, you could be polling at 15% everywhere, but that may not get you any actual seats in Parliament. So we have got a, a real piece of work to do around working out just the demographics, but also what the issues are and how we make sure that our targeting strategy aligns with our messaging strategy. And I think that was one of the issues we had at the last election, where there is some data, some external analysis that shows that actually there was some degree of support for our policy, but it wasn't in the seats that we could win. And as for the local elections next year, well, actually, it'll be the first set of local elections after the COVID crisis, after the end of the transition period for Brexit, where there's going to be a real squeeze on local services. And I think there's going to be a bit of a heart and soul fight for which services are going to continue. You know, what are the political parties' differences on that front? So um, Liberal Democrats are always, well, we're always confident. I don't know if we're quietly confident or whether we're loudly confident. But yeah, I think it's fair to say we're, at least we're quietly confident about making some gains uh, next year. Well, based on the enthusiasm in your voice, they are clearly going to be something to watch for the Lib Dems. But Daisy, thank you very much for joining us on the podcast and a special thanks to Law for a double billing this week. We're going to miss you and we'll hear from you again sometime in 2021. That's it for this week's episode of Payne's Politics. If you enjoyed the podcast, then we'd recommend subscribing. You can find us through all the usual channels, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Play and your smart speaker to receive episodes as soon as they're released. And for those who have become regular listeners of our interview specials, our next midweek episode will now be on September the 9th. I'll be joined then by Bridget Philipson, Labour's Shadow Chief Secretary to the Treasury, to discuss how the party can become fiscally credible again. And if that's not enough, it's nearly time for the fifth annual FT Weekend Festival. And this year, due to the weird circumstances, we've gone digital. Wherever you are in the world, you can join us between September the 3rd and Saturday, September the 5th, for three days of debate about the social, political and economic issues of our time. Visit ftweekend.live.ft.com to find out more and book your passes. Payne's Politics was presented by me, Sebastian Payne, and produced by Anna Dedder and Josh Delamere. The sound engineer is Breen Turner and the editor, Liam Nolan. Until next time, thanks for listening. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. 
Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.